On January 20th, 2008, the unthinkable happened. 19-year-old Brianna Dennison was abducted while sleeping on her friend's couch. Her attacker left behind DNA, linking Brianna's abduction and murder to a series of rapes in the area. The only question was, whose DNA was it? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. This week has been testing me. I said on Sunday, last Sunday, how excited I was for a full week back after the holidays. And then Monday morning, my husband left on a business trip. No big deal. I've got this. Then Monday night, my two-year-old started throwing up. And then on Thursday, as he's barely recovered, my six-year-old starts. He was patient zero in his kindergarten classroom. I'm sure his teacher is not listening, but I apologize to her if she is. I ended up with exactly one day to work all this week. So I am recording this at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. And as soon as I stop this, I will edit it as quickly as I can to get this out to everyone on Patreon and Himalaya Plus. As most of you know, On those platforms, not only do I release monthly bonus content, I also release the episodes early and ad-free. This week, it's just not going to be as early as I had hoped. A big thank you to Haley for the research on this one, because I'll be honest, there's no way I would have been able to get an episode out this week without her help. But I am sure everyone will be healthy in time for the Generation Y Crime Lines live show featuring the Gangland Wire podcast. It is on January 24th, so it's right around the corner. Gary Jenkins is the host of Gangland Wire, and he's also retired KCPD. We're going to cover a very well-known Kansas City case. It's one you guys have asked me to cover on the show. And we are going to have Gary's input on it. It's going to be amazing. It's part of Kansas City's Panic Fest on January 24th. You will find all the details you need at screenland.com and then click the Coming Soon button. I will leave a link to the ticket sales in the show notes. Tonight's case is one that Chrissy suggested, and as soon as I looked it up, I knew I had to know more. If you like forensics and if you believe in ending the backlog of rape kits, keep listening. We are going to talk about the murder of Brianna Dennison. Brianna was born in March 1988 in Reno, Nevada, to a well-to-do family. Her father, Jeff, just had a knack for business And at a young age, at just 19, he owned half of Big O Tires. And then at 21, he bought out the other half. He was the youngest person in the country to own a national franchise. He eventually sold that business. He invested and bought others, sold them, kind of bounced around a bit, making money as he went. Eventually, in 1992, he formed a new company. Textile Brokers of America. It was a merchandise company making custom apparel for events and organizations. But things started going south 
And somehow Jeff's textile company got on the radar of the federal investigators. They were looking at him for fraud. In 1994, Jeff was facing federal charges for check kiting to the tune of $900,000. The feds were also actively building a case against him for running a suspected pyramid Ponzi scheme with the investors for his business. Their allegation was that Jeff claimed to have a highly profitable contract and used that to attract investors. Then he used the money from the new investors to pay dividends to the old ones, keeping up the appearance that his company was extremely profitable. That appearance made more people want to invest and so on and so on. They claimed he embezzled an additional $1.5 million this way. So they're looking at a total of $2.4 million in fraudulently obtained funds. Jeff pleaded not guilty to this, and he asserted his innocence. Then in April 1994, at the age of 34 and staring down these charges, Jeff took his own life, leaving behind his wife and two children, Brianna being just six years old at the time. After Jeff's death, his attorney asserted that his client was innocent. And of course, Jeff's death meant that this was never adjudicated in court. Brianna's mother, Bridget, then moved Brianna and her little brother away from Reno and to her family's home in Mendocino, California, About a week after an article about Jeff's death appeared in the Reno Gazette Journal, Brianna, with the help of her grandfather, wrote a letter to the paper. The paper printed it in the letters to the editor section, and it will break your heart in a million pieces. It's called, I Want My Daddy Back. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking. The note was a bit of a defense of Jeff. It refers back to the earlier article about him, that he took his own life in the face of criminal charges. And I would really hope and assume that six-year-old Brianna was shielded from some of this. I think this letter was more a mashup of a six-year-old eulogy of her father, which is so sad, but also her grandfather's hand in this a little bit, helping to defend Jeff a bit. Because it said how Her daddy always kept his promises and named a few things that he had done with Brianna, building sandboxes, that sort of thing. And then it said, sometimes it took a long time for his promises to be kept because he was so busy. But in the end, he never broke a promise. Then it said, quote, like the promise he made you, he would have kept if you would have given him more time and worked with him. So the you here is probably referring to the investors who wanted their money back or the federal government who charged him. I'm not sure, but it says, now my daddy is in heaven and he can't keep any more promises and closes with, I miss him so much. Being so young, Brianna, of course, did struggle with her father's death and she started therapy, specifically art therapy, as a child and it really helped her. Bridget kept the kids in California for a few years, but then they eventually moved back to Reno in 2000, and Brianna graduated from Reno High School in 2006. She was really outgoing and compassionate, and her earlier experience with art therapy inspired her to want to work with children in similar situations, children who have dealt with some type of trauma. 
it's really no surprise that when Brianna went to college at Santa Barbara City College, she was planning to become a child psychologist. Brianna went home to Reno for her winter break between classes in December 2007. She was 19 years old and a sophomore at college. Near the end of her break on January 19th, 2008, she went out with some friends for a very typical Saturday night out. Brianna and her friend Jessica Deal went to a third friend's house around 7 or 8 that night. This friend, Katie Hunter, lived about a three-minute walk to the University of Nevada, Reno campus. But on this night, Katie's home was mostly just a convenient place to be because they were attending a party at the Sands Regency Casino just a mile away from campus. From the party, they took a bus to a concert and then took the bus back to the Sands Regency. The plan was for Brianna and Jessica to just spend the night at Katie's house afterwards. After the concert, they got back to the Sands Regency, and Jessica was tired. She had things to do the next day, so alone, she headed back to Katie's house to sleep. Brianna and Katie decided to stay out longer. Eventually, they grabbed a bite to eat at a diner before getting a ride back to Katie's apartment. It was around 4 a.m., This is an aside, but I can only vaguely remember when being out until 4 a.m. seemed like a good idea. Right now, it just sounds exhausting and a little horrifying, if I'm being honest. Anyway, when Katie and Brianna got to the house, they saw that Jessica was already asleep in Katie's bed. So Brianna said she'd take the couch. Katie got her a pillow and some blankets and headed off to bed herself. As Katie was heading to bed, she saw Brianna texting. It turned out to be a text to Brianna's boyfriend, and it was sent at 4.23 a.m. So let's fast forward a few hours to when Katie woke up. She went out to the living room to find the couch empty, except for a pillow and one of the blankets she had given Brianna. She noticed there was some staining on the pillow that looked like blood. And from my understanding of the staining, it wasn't a lot. It's not like she came out to this horribly bloody scene. They were more like an inch to three inches, making them look more like what you would expect from a middle-of-the-night nosebleed. But Katie had a dog who would chew on things and then hurl them up. So honestly, her initial impression was she thought her dog had made a mess. So Katie wasn't in shock over the blood, but she did realize Brianna wasn't anywhere else in the house. What Katie did find were Brianna's purse, her cell phone, and even her shoes. They were all still in the living room. So Brianna's not in the house, but where could she have gone without her shoes on? I mean, let alone her purse or her cell phone, but no shoes. Between the blood and Brianna being missing and all of her things still being In the house, alarm bells started going off. So Katie called Brianna's mom, Bridget. Brianna wasn't at her house, so Bridget said, call the police. And then she, as in Bridget, went over to the house to wait for them. When police arrived, they noticed a few things right off the bat. One, the door to the house had been left unlocked all night, which wasn't actually unusual for them. The door was often left open. 
Second, Katie told police that Brianna went to sleep with two blankets, a pillow, and then a stuffed teddy bear that was being used to elevate the pillow a little bit. One blanket was still on the couch, as was the pillow, but the other blanket was on the kitchen floor, which is located between the living room and the back door. The teddy bear, oddly enough, was completely gone. Because of these blood stains on the pillow, it was not taken as an, oh, she must have left situation. The responding officer immediately believed something bad had happened. With a closer look at the pillow, they noticed that right above the blood stains were what looked like mascara smeared on the pillow. What they're thinking is that Brianna may have been held face down on the pillow to transfer the mascara the way it did. This was confirmed as what probably did happen when the pillow was taken into evidence and processed. They learned the stains were a mix of blood, saliva, and mucus. So we have mascara from the eyes, mucus from the nose and mouth, and saliva from the mouth. The blood could have come from the nose, mouth, or both, and it was confirmed to be Brianna's blood. The pillow wasn't the only thing they processed from the scene. They took swabs of the blanket, the couch, and the doorknobs, both for the front and back doors, and ran those for DNA. They were particularly interested in the rear exit of the house since the blanket was dropped on the floor as though someone was heading out that way. In looking at this crime scene holistically, it appeared that Brianna may have been targeted by someone she didn't know. This may have been an opportunistic crime. Someone peeping in could have seen her through the window, sleeping on the couch, and vulnerable. Another possibility was that someone saw Brianna and Katie enter the house when they returned and just waited until it looked like they went to bed to enter the house. He then attacked the first woman he came across, which would have been Brianna, on the couch. Most violent crimes are perpetrated by someone the victim knows, so that narrows down the suspect list. We're looking at family members, friends, coworkers, partners, classmates. But when you're looking at an opportunistic crime like this, it could be anyone. This is spitting distance from downtown Reno, and it is right near a college campus with an enrollment of 20,000 students. This is a huge suspect pool. And without an eyewitness coming forward to give any information about some creepy guy on the street or a car that zoomed by, investigators were going to need this forensic evidence to pay off. At this point, though, they were looking for a missing person who they suspected may have been killed, but they didn't know. She could have been held somewhere or she may have been abducted, assaulted, and left somewhere alive. So searches for Brianna began immediately with many, many, many volunteers showing up. They covered 100 square miles around Reno in their searches, but nothing was found to give any clue as to where Brianna was. On January 24th, 2008, just a few days after Brianna went missing, the police said they were talking with registered sex offenders in the area. They started with those within a mile of Katie's house, and that was somewhere around 100 people. 
I thought this number sounded really high, even knowing it's a densely populated area, but I looked it up. Nevada isn't even in the top 15 states for most registered sex offenders per capita, and Reno isn't a top 10 city either. So I guess this is within average range. Anyway, they said they were going to question those 100 or so first, and then they were going to branch out to all of Washoe County, which had more like 1,700 offenders. So following the line of an opportunistic attack by a possible sex offender, they did think there was a very good chance this person had done this before, at least had sexually assaulted someone before. Think about what a bold move this was. Katie and Jessica were sleeping in a bedroom right off of the living room. This man entered the home that he was probably unfamiliar with. He attacked a woman without disturbing the people right on the other side of a bedroom door. He then left with Brianna completely undetected. Except for Brianna's biological evidence left on the pillow, it appeared he left no evidence of his presence behind. Except he did leave a very little tiny bit of evidence. The swab from the doorknob on the back door came back for an unknown male. It was hard to get too excited about this DNA immediately because it really could have belonged to somebody who was in the house for a benign reason. This was a college student's home. It could have been a classmate, a friend, someone coming over for a study group. But they ran it, hoping they would get somewhere with it, and they did. On January 27, 2008, just about a week after Brianna disappeared, the hit came in. Not to a specific person, but it was linked to an unknown rapist who had attacked before. On December 16, 2007, a month before Brianna went missing, a 22-year-old UNR student, who we will call EC, arrived home around 2 a.m. She was getting out of her car when someone came up behind her, choked her to the point of unconsciousness, and then carried her to his truck. When E.C. woke up in the truck, she realized her glasses were broken and she had an injury to her face. The man who kidnapped her then proceeded to rape her while in the truck. But then he drove her back to her apartment where he just left her, fully dressed except for her underwear, which he kept. E.C. called the police and was brought to the hospital for a sexual assault forensic exam, a.k.a. a rape kit which is a necessary but still invasive exam to go through after you've just been traumatized. They were able to find male DNA as well as fibers consistent with a vehicle carpet. EC, in spite of this awful trauma, gave a very thorough description of everything. A composite sketch was made of the attacker. He was a white male in his early 20s to mid-30s, who had a heavy build but was not overly muscular. E.C. was also able to tell the police that the truck was a mid-sized pickup truck with an extended cab. But beyond that, she described the console. She described the type of seats 
including the manual adjusting lever on the seat and pretty much everything else you could think of about the inside of that truck. Now, EC didn't know the make and model of this vehicle, but her description was so freaking detailed that they narrowed it down to a 2001 to 2006 extended cab Toyota Tacoma. Just from her description, they got the make and model of the vehicle and the year within five years. All from her description. It's just amazing that she was able to focus on these details, remember them, and then give them to police on what was very likely the worst night of her life. And where E.C. was attacked was maybe a six-minute walk from Katie's house, further linking the crimes geographically. This attacker was sticking to the same area. That indicated to police it was a place he was familiar with. After Brianna's disappearance on January 31st, another woman, we'll call AC, contacted the police. She had been assaulted in a parking garage on campus back in October 2007. She was walking to her car after class when she was grabbed, dragged between two cars, and raped at gunpoint. Her attacker also took her underwear. Because it had happened three months prior to it being reported, there was no forensic evidence to collect and definitively tie this case to EC and Brianna's attacker. But due to the taking of the underwear and the geographic location and the time frame, it was circumstantially similar enough that police believed this was the same attacker. We have yet another assault, though. On November 13th, a 21-year-old student was walking through her apartment complex's parking lot. This would be about two minutes from where Brianna was last seen, and that is two minutes on foot, so very, very close. As this woman walked, someone grabbed her and forcefully fondled her. She called the police. They came out to the scene and found a condom on the ground near where she had been grabbed. There was DNA on the condom. When it was run, it matched the DNA from EC's forensic exam and the doorknob at Katie's house. So we have four attacks, almost all exactly a month apart from mid-October to mid-January. So investigators are wondering if this man has been caught before. At the time, the county had 3,000 DNA samples from convicted offenders that had yet to be processed. The answer to these rapes could be on those shelves. So on February 4th, 2008, the Washoe County Sheriff asked people to donate to clear their backlog. He estimated it would take $150,000 to get this done. And within four days, they raised beyond what they needed. People were so moved by this case, and they really wanted to get this serial offender off the streets. It may be catching this guy would lead them to where Brianna was. This attacker had left his previous victims alive, even the other victim he kidnapped. He brought her back to her apartment. So why didn't he bring Brianna back? Was it possible he was holding her somewhere alive? Or had he escalated to murder? On February 15, 2008, the question was answered. Alberto Jimenez was walking back to work after his lunch break when he decided to take a shortcut through a vacant lot. 
he saw a discarded Christmas tree lying on the ground, and right near it, he saw brightly colored socks. But they weren't lying crumpled on the ground. They were on something. He went closer to the small drainage culvert where the socks were sticking out and thought at first it was a mannequin wearing nothing but socks. But then he saw an injury to the shoulder and he noticed there were teeth. And his brain caught up to him, caught up to the shock of what he was seeing, and he realized this was a woman's body. He ran to work, told his boss what he saw. They both went back to the scene and called the police from there. This was about eight miles from where Brianna had been abducted. Her body had been placed in the culvert, and then some items were put in a way to partially obscure her. The Christmas tree was there. There was another dead tree that had been pulled over, and a large rock. If it wasn't for these socks, Alberta would have walked right past her. Identification in this case was not difficult because even though Brianna was missing for a month, this was the winter. Her body was fairly well-preserved. At the scene, aside from the socks, the only clothing found were two pairs of women's thong underwear, and neither pair belonged to Brianna. One pair was identified by Brianna's friend, Katie, as hers. She hadn't even noticed they were missing, so she wasn't sure when they had been taken. They could have been taken from the scene when the man took Brianna, but an even scarier thought, he may have been in the house before and took them at a different time. If he had been there before, he would have known there was a woman's bedroom on the ground floor. It's terrifying to think that he may have been targeting the house, and possibly Katie in particular, but found Brianna first since she was on the couch. So that explains one pair of underwear. The second pair were never identified as belonging to anyone in Brianna's circle. The material was a Pink Panther cartoon pattern, and police released a photograph in the hopes someone could help identify them. That might lead to Brianna's killer, or maybe identify another possible rape victim, since we know he liked to keep the underwear after an attack. No one, to this date, has come forward. Both pairs of underwear were swabbed for DNA, as was Brianna's body, and the whole crime scene in general. All of the male DNA found at the scene matched the DNA from the doorknob and from the previous rape kit and also from that condom. There was one allele found that didn't match Brianna's DNA or the rapist's DNA, which could indicate a third party or it could have been contamination. It was such a small contributor, particularly compared to Brianna's DNA, and the rapist's DNA at the scene. They were also able to find fibers consistent with a vehicle carpet fiber on the socks, but that's not surprising since the killer had to transport her there somehow, and a vehicle would have been likely. Cause of death was determined to be strangulation, with the quote-unquote weapon being one of the pairs of underwear found at the scene. So now we have more of the serial rapist-turned-murderer's DNA, but still no suspect to match it to. Meanwhile, Brianna's family is once again preparing for a funeral for someone far too young. And like her father's death, 
there was some scandal going on because, believe it or not, the Westboro Baptist Church showed up. For those who don't know, the Westboro Baptist Church is a hate group that claimed to be a church. They're formed mostly from one family, the Phelps family. They're out in Topeka, Kansas. They are anti a lot of things, but they are best known for being anti-LGBTQ plus community on the whole. They are hateful people, and they protest anywhere they can get attention. The realty on Westboro Baptist Church is that they love attention more than they hate gay people. But before you picture some mass protest, remember, this is pretty much one family and a couple of their friends. And Reno is quite the trip from Topeka, Kansas. So only three of them even showed up. It was the world's most pathetic protest. The reason they were there, though, is that they were angry about another funeral they picketed in Reno a month before. They really love picketing the funerals of soldiers because it causes a stir and gets them all that attention they need. Well, they protested the funeral of Staff Sergeant Sean Gall in January 2008. They had the same rousing numbers of three of them showing up, like in Brianna's case. Many, many more counter-protesters showed up and blocked their signs from being visible by the funeral attendees. There was a little shouting match at some point. Nothing that bad, but Fred Phelps, the then head of the church, got his feelings hurt, so they were protesting Brianna's funeral because the city of Reno was mean to them once. Does that make any sense? It probably doesn't. Westboro Baptist Church shouldn't make sense to you, and if they do, this is probably the wrong podcast for you to be listening to. Anyway, they carried signs that said, God sent the killer, pray for more dead kids, and don't worship the dead. And that's it. Those are all the signs, because like I said, only three of them shelled out the cash to get to Reno. Other than Westboro's attention-seeking, Brianna's mother, brother, and loved ones were able to lay her to rest in relative peace, or at least as much peace as you can have in this situation. Back at the forensic lab, there was no peace because they were processing DNA samples like the wind. By March 13th, they had finished all 3,000 samples from the backlog. Brianna's killer had not been among them. But they were able to link 30 other unsolved cases to these offenders. 30 cases were solved by actually running the DNA they had already collected. I do not blame law enforcement for this. I do not blame state labs for this. This cost $150,000. That money has to come from somewhere. It's so typical of how things are done. The legislature passes these great programs and policy changes and puts requirements on agencies, everyone from the police to the schools, and then gives them next to no budget to implement it. Or we're going to fund it for a chunk of time, and then the funding gets cut or phased out. So now they have all these DNA samples and no budget to run them. They had to turn to the citizens to collect the money. And that's going to bring us to this week's donation suggestion. 
I hope you join me in donating to End the Backlog at endthebacklog.org. Charity Navigator gives their parent organization, Joyful Heart Foundation, a good score, and over 94% of the money goes directly to their programs. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Clearing this backlog in Washoe County helped other cold cases, but it did not help catch Brianna's killer. Her case was going to need a tip to break it, and by early April 2008, the police had received more than 4,000 tips. They spent spring, summer, fall 2008 sifting through these tips and chasing up leads. Then on November 1st, 2008, an anonymous tip came in that changed everything. This woman said that her friend, Carlene Harmon, had complained about some problems she was having with her longtime boyfriend and father of her child, James Bila. In September 2008, eight months after Brianna went missing, the friend said Carlene was helping James move to Sparks, a city outside of Reno. While helping, she found a pair of women's underwear in James's vehicle. Carlene confronted him about it, and he said he stole them from a laundromat. I'm sure Carlene suspected cheating rather than rape and murder, but the friend knew the police were looking for someone who took women's underwear, and so she called it in. Within a week, detectives pulled 27-year-old James Bila in for an interview. He matched the sketch EC had made, and a quick record search showed that he drove a 2006 Toyota Tacoma at the time of EC's rape, the same truck she described in that amazing detail. A month after Brianna's body was found, James had moved to Washington State, so that's March 2008, and he sold his Tacoma, and it's reported a little differently in different places. He sold it to a dealership. The dealership may have been in Washington State. Some say it was in Idaho, but in the end, the vehicle ended up with a couple who lived in Idaho. James stayed in Washington all spring and summer, returning to Nevada in September 2008, which is when Carlene found the underwear. James was interrogated for the rapes and Brianna's murder and denied he had anything to do with it, but he wasn't really convincing. He was fidgeting. He was sweating. He was giving police the impression he was hiding something, so they definitely thought they're on the right track. He did have an alibi for both the night E.C. was raped and when Brianna disappeared. He said he was with his girlfriend, but he declined the police's request for a DNA sample. All of this adds up to investigators wanting to take a much closer look at James Bila. They went to the company James was working at at the time of the attacks, and they found out the same day Brianna's body was found James asked for a voluntary layoff from his job, saying he wanted to go to Washington State for another opportunity. Sometimes people will do this. They'll ask for a layoff rather than quitting because it leaves them eligible for unemployment benefits. It avoids the black mark on their employment record that they quit a job with no notice. And it also lets them still get paid for any vacation days they have left at that job. 
His boss said no to this layoff request. He said James is going to have to quit. Then James demanded to be laid off. And I'm not sure the resolution of this because HR complaints, that's not the topic of this podcast. The point of bringing this up is that James wanted to leave the job immediately, but still be eligible to have money coming in through any paid vacation days he had left, possibly filing for unemployment. That indicates that he didn't have a job lined up like he said, or he possibly wanted to have an excuse for leaving the job immediately should anyone check up on it. It would look suspicious if the police called his job and found out that the same day Brianna's body was found, he quit on the spot. But if they called and the HR file says he was laid off, it would look like a coincidence. Whatever his reasoning, James left his job that very day, but before leaving, he told one of his coworkers while discussing the news of Brianna's body being found that the B probably had it coming. This stuck in the coworker's mind because this was such an odd thing for him to say. This was a murdered 19-year-old college student. James supposedly didn't know the victim or anything about her. So why was he saying something so offensive about the victim? The same day the police went to his former place of employment, they called James's girlfriend Carlene in for an interview. This is her boyfriend for five, six years, the father of her child. To her credit, she did not try to cover for him. She told the truth. She unalibied him, saying he wasn't actually home. And there were other nights he was gone. In late 2007 and early 2008, James would leave the house for large chunks of time at night and claim he was just sleeping in his truck. And she also confirmed what the tipster said about how she found underwear in his vehicle. The circumstantial case against James was growing. He lied about his alibi. He had a habit of disappearing at night, and that included the nights of at least two of the attacks. When Brianna's body was found, he quit his job. And then shortly after that, he moved out of the state and got rid of his truck. But what they didn't have here was his DNA to compare against the samples from the crime scene. To compel a DNA sample, they would need probable cause, which can be a high bar depending on the situation. It would be a lot easier to just get it from him voluntarily or to get it from a relative. Carlene and James had a child together. Based on what Carlene had said in the interview, They knew she wasn't trying to cover for him. She wasn't going to try to save James from the consequences of his actions. So they asked her if she would consent to them DNA testing her son. And she said, sure. On November 25th, the DNA test came back showing a familial match to the DNA from the doorknob, the DNA from Brianna's body, and the DNA from EC's rape kit. And, of course, the DNA from the condom from the fondling assault. So now they not only have enough to compel James to provide his own DNA sample, they have enough to arrest him. On November 25th, 2008, James was on his way to pick his son up from preschool when police arrested him. So this is where we stop and talk about our main suspect for a minute. 
James was born in June 1981 in Chicago into poverty. According to his siblings, their father Joseph was incredibly abusive to their mother Kathy and in front of the children, which is its own form of abuse. So one more time, if there is intimate partner violence in front of children, the children are experiencing abuse, even if not a single finger is laid on them. If they are witnesses to the abuse of another sibling, even if they are spared, they are also being abused. That said, this was extreme by any standards. And the abuse these children were witnessing was particularly sadistic. Kathy would hide under the bed to get away from Joseph, and he would drag her out and whip her with a belt. Possibly even more scarring to James in particular was his father's sexual abuse of his mother. James had the bedroom next to his parents, so he could hear Joseph handcuff Kathy to the bed and beat her while describing sexual fantasies. This has been reported by James's siblings. His earliest and most consistent exposure to sex included violence. Over the years, Kathy sustained injuries like busted teeth and broken ribs. Eventually, she needed surgery on her wrists. They had so much damage to them from being tied up and beaten. The family moved to Reno, and Kathy finally left Joseph after a near-fatal beating. One day, Kathy forgot to bring home tequila, and Joseph flew into a rage. He started repeatedly slamming her head onto the floor. Thankfully for Kathy, the kids recognized that this was not an ordinary attack on their mother. They realized she was not going to survive it if it wasn't stopped. And how sad is that? That they had an ordinary level of abuse in their lives that they could measure this. But they knew it was bad. So they ran to a family member's house and the police were called. Joseph was arrested. And this is when Kathy left him for good. When these accusations of abuse eventually came out after James's arrest for Brianna's murder, a reporter with the Associated Press called Joseph to ask him about it. He first denied it. He said that things were fine at home. But then he followed it up with, and I'm not even kidding, here is his quote, I beat my wife, but never my kids. That is Joseph's definition of everything being fine. I think that says a lot right there. So life was incredibly tumultuous for James growing up. After high school, he entered the Marine Corps, but he was discharged two years later. He went AWOL and had either tested positive or got caught using marijuana. Shortly after this discharge from the Marines came the only arrest I could find for James Bila before Brianna's murder. James got into a drunken argument with his former girlfriend's neighbor and pulled a knife. James was arrested for felony assault, and his ex-girlfriend followed it up by filing a restraining order against him. He eventually pleaded it down to simple assault, which was a misdemeanor. James then trained to become a plumber and worked at the University of Novato, Reno, the year before Brianna disappeared. This tidbit is proving that other part. Investigators knew this attacker was working somewhere he was familiar with. Working on the campus doing plumbing work helped him learn the area very well. 
When arrested for the murder, police also were able to then serve a search warrant for James's DNA, ran the test immediately, and the next day they had a match. They were also able to follow the paper trail to find the current owners of the Toyota Tacoma he had sold. The fibers in that vehicle matched the ones found on EC and on Brianna's socks. The fiber evidence, I mean, it's nice, but the DNA evidence here was the smoking gun. Carpet fibers, they can't track back to a single vehicle the way DNA tracks you back to a single suspect. The DA announced on January 8th, 2009, that he was seeking the death penalty against James Bila. The trial was held in May 2010. They brought in the carpet fiber match. They also brought in the circumstantial evidence of him quitting his job and moving, selling the Tacoma. EC and AC, his prior rape victims, also testified because he was also being charged in those cases as well. So I'm sure their testimony impacted the jury. James's now ex-girlfriend, Carlene, also testified. She testified about how he acted when they would discuss Brianna's case. It may sound weird that they were randomly discussing it, but it wasn't necessarily random. Where Brianna's body was found was in sight of Carlene's workplace. So, of course, a body being found near where she worked is going to come up in conversation. She said he initially went completely quiet when she told him that a body was found near her work. But in another conversation, James said the only reason people cared about Brianna was because she was rich and hot. He said other people were being raped and no one was talking about them. They were just talking about Brianna. So this specific testimony doesn't necessarily add much to the guilt side, but I'm bringing it up because of how absolutely bizarre it hit me that Brianna's actual murderer was complaining about missing white woman syndrome. I find that so weird. But regardless of that testimony or any of the other testimony, this was a DNA case. The state could have just pointed to the results and sat down and their case was made. James was defended through the public defender's office. In my view, they did what they could with what they had. They pointed to the differences in the rape cases and questioned that they were all connected. One of the victims had reported that she believed she contracted an STI from her rapist. There was no evidence that James had that STI. Now, for me, it doesn't prove he wasn't her rapist. It just proves that she was wrong about the source of her infection, and that happens. The defense did call a DNA expert. This was their only witness, this DNA expert, to pick over the state's DNA processing procedures, hoping to raise some kind of doubt on the reliability of the tests. But these tests were really consistent, and it made it hard to argue otherwise. They did raise the issue that the state used up all the samples running their tests so the defense couldn't run their own tests. But really, we aren't talking here about one speck in one spot. Let's say they just had the small amount of DNA on the doorknob and it matched James Bila. 
Maybe has benign excuse for being there. Maybe it was transferred between someone else to the doorknob. Maybe the test was inaccurate and now they can't retest it. That's where this argument would fit. But that's not all the DNA we have. These were multiple samples that were found in multiple places, and they weren't even all in the same case being tested at the same time. So the chance for cross-contamination was pretty small. What are the odds the DNA was wrong when they ran it from the condom in November, EC's case in December, the doorknob in January, and Umbriana's body in February? Four samples run at four different times all came back as James Bela's DNA. The defense, really simply put, had an uphill battle in court, seeing as James was guilty. I'm one of those people who can pick apart almost any conviction. And this one, unless some groundbreaking, earth-shattering evidence against DNA, some major change in how we view science happens, unless that happens, I can't see how James is not guilty. James had made some noise about wanting to testify on his own behalf, but when it came time to do it, on the advice of counsel, he said no. The trial lasted for three weeks, and after six hours of deliberation, the jury found James guilty across the board on May 27, 2010. There was a really touching moment after the guilty verdict. Brianna's grandmother, Barbara, crossed the courtroom and went up to James's mother, Kathy. She reached out her hands and Kathy took them. Barbara said something to Kathy that no one else heard. When she was asked about it by the media later, all she would say was, I'm a mom, she's a mom. Recognizing the loss James's family was experiencing, even though he was the cause of her own grief, that is a compassionate person at the core. I mean, feeling bad for James's mom is one thing, but Barbara actually reached out to her. It really takes something a little extra to be able to do that. But the ordeal was not over for either family. The jury still had to determine James's sentence since the death penalty was on the table. During the sentencing portion was when James's childhood was explored as a possible mitigating factor. James Bila opted to speak on his own behalf. He was allowed to make a statement without being sworn in as a witness and without being subjected to cross-examination if, and only if, he restricted his comments to asking for mercy or showing remorse. If James proclaimed his innocence or tried to argue any facts of the case that were established at his trial, he would then be sworn in and the state would be allowed to cross-examine him. So James said nothing about guilt or innocence. He said he was sorry that this had destroyed so many families. He also said he regretted that no matter what happened with his sentence, he would not be able to raise his son. He went on to say it might not be the right time or the right place, but he wanted to let his son know that he loved him. Brianna's family then gave their impact statements, essentially telling the jury James did not deserve mercy. In the jury sentence, they recognized James's abusive childhood, but stopped short of making that a justification for mercy. 
James Bila was sentenced to death. As James was let out of the courtroom, he turned back and told his mother he was sorry and he loved her. At another sentencing hearing, James was sentenced for all the other charges related to the other rapes and the abduction of E.C. He ended up with a very long sentence because the judge made them all consecutive. Even if his death penalty ended up overturned, even if his murder conviction ended up overturned, James was never getting out of prison. All of his appeals so far have been denied. His most recent one was denied in April 2019, and then he filed for a rehearing, which was denied as well. And in that one, the court did seem to agree with him that his defense was ineffective in certain ways, but that the evidence was so overwhelming otherwise. Because we know these are the two things you have to prove to get a sentence or a conviction overturned. You have to prove something was unfair. And had it not been for that thing, you would have likely had a different outcome. Here, the court said unanimously, there is no way you are going to get another outcome. Like many families who deal with the aftermath of a huge tragedy, Brianna's family wanted to figure out what could be done to help prevent this from happening again. Back in November 2008, so we're talking a couple weeks before James Bila was arrested, right when he was coming on police radar, Brianna's friends and family started the Bring Bree Justice Foundation. And the foundation wanted to promote legal efforts to increase consequences, which would then prevent violent crimes, and also promote public awareness of safety issues to ensure the safety of all women and children in the state of Nevada. After James Bela was arrested, this mission did broaden to include lobbying for DNA testing and databases. In May 2013, Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval signed Brianna's law. The law requires a DNA cheek swab of every person booked on a felony arrest, not just convicted. This has to be taken just like they take fingerprints when someone is arrested. Now, if the arrest was a non-warrant arrest, meaning the officer made the decision on the spot to arrest that person, the swab is taken, but it is held until the probable cause for the arrest is established. Once established, the DNA is run and entered into the system to look for any other crimes. But if probable cause is not established and the arrest is quashed, they destroy the sample. There is some controversy over this. The ACLU, which is a civil liberties organization, if you don't know, said that they were concerned this was an overstep. You are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Taking and running your DNA against other crimes when you're still legally innocent of what you were arrested for, it's more or less compelling you to use your DNA to incriminate yourself in other crimes. But when the Reno Gazette Journal reached the ACLU for comment in January 2018, they said they've been monitoring the situation, but it's not a top priority issue for them. The U.S. Supreme Court did rule on this type of law back in 2013, and they said police can take a DNA sample when someone is arrested for a serious crime, even before they've been convicted. It was challenged based on a similar Maryland law, and the court upheld this practice. 
If Nevada had this law in 2007 when E.C. was raped, Brianna may still be alive. James was arrested way back in 2002 for wielding a knife at a neighbor. That was a felony arrest. Had Brianna's law been in effect, his DNA would have been taken, run, and stored. When E.C. was attacked and James's DNA found during her rape kit, they would have had a hit. He would have been arrested, and Brianna would still be alive. This is a little bit of a maybe, though. James would have had the option to have his DNA expunged from the database. There are a few conditions for having this done, and one of them is if the charge was reduced to a non-felony, which is what happened in James's case. He pleaded out to a misdemeanor. You don't even need a lawyer to get your DNA expunged. There's not even a fee. You just fill out an application. You send it in with the appropriate paperwork showing you are eligible for this, and then they just remove it. There would have been a chance, though, that he wouldn't have gone through this, and his DNA would have been there. The implementation of Brianna's law is funded through a $3 fee that is automatically tacked on to the fine anyone convicted of a felony has to pay. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, as of January 2018, nine cold case murders were solved through this practice. Suspects were found in more than 100 sexual assaults, and a bunch more crimes like property crimes and assaults were eventually solved. It was somewhere around 1,000 total cases that have been aided by this felony arrest DNA collection. Meanwhile, James Bila is on death row in White Pine County, Nevada. Nevada has not carried out a death sentence since 2006, though not for lack of trying. In 2010, a scheduled execution was stayed pending more appeals. And then in 2017, Scott Dozier was scheduled to die by lethal injection. Dozier had waived appeals and asked for them to hurry up, carry out a sentence. He got his date, it got pushed out, it eventually fell in the summer of 2018, and it looked like it was actually going to happen. But hours before it was to take place, the pharmaceutical company that produces one of the medications used filed a lawsuit demanding its drug not be used in any executions. The company, Alvogen, argued that the use of their medication in executions harms their reputation as a company, and that the state of Nevada had fraudulently obtained the drugs that they were using. And they won this case. The drug was not allowed to be used in executions in Nevada, putting Dozer in a state of limbo. The state was willing to execute him. He was willing to be executed. But there was now no legal process to do so. So he was sent back to death row while things were figured out, and in January 2019, he took his own life in his cell, ending his legal story. Two weeks before the posting of this episode, the Las Vegas Review-Journal published an article that questioned the future of the death penalty in Nevada. They said prosecutors are asking for the death penalty less often, juries are less often giving it, And the state's stores of drugs used in executions are expiring with no clear path to get more because more pharmaceutical companies 
are following Alvogen's lead. Now, this isn't necessarily some moral issue for these companies. The more we hear about botched executions using these medications, the less these companies want their product names associated with it. So whether these companies care about the death penalty or not, they do care about getting bad press. So whether James Bila or any of the other 70-ish people on death row in Nevada will ever be executed remains unknown. James won't be executed anytime soon regardless because he still has his right to federal appeals, with his last state appeal being rejected in April 2019. But thanks to the DNA evidence and the judge stacking the sentences for rape and kidnapping, no matter what happens, James Bila is never getting out of prison. <laughs> 